such a pleasure to welcome Catherine Hall Page to the podcast. I've been reading Catherine's warm and sophisticated mysteries since she launched the Faith Fairchild series in 1989. Over the years, we have followed the Manhattan-born caterer as she has adjusted to life as the wife of a Massachusetts minister and built a family and friend network that Catherine has followed through 26 novels. Along the way, she has won two Agatha Awards, and in 2016, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Malice Domestic Crime Fiction Conference. I want to welcome you, Catherine. Thank you for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, many series authors decided to ignore the COVID crisis. Some turned to historical, some went out of series and did standalones, but you faced it dead on in The Body and the Web, which which came out earlier this year. Could you talk a bit about why you wanted your protagonist, Faith Fairchild, and her family and friends to have to deal with the pandemic? Well, um, there's a, a couple of reasons. For one thing, um, I didn't write it during, you know, the. I, I mean, I date the the start of the pandemic um, in the afterward, I, I talk about um, that I was in Boston um, uh, and it was already, you know, we, we knew, we already knew what was coming. Yeah. Um, and this is early March and um, these Norwegian cousins had, had come despite everyone saying, no, no, not a good time. And they were saying, oh, no, we'll be fine. Um, and so I went into town because I said, you know, you can't come to, to the house. Um, you know, we have to be outside, all of this. Yeah. And nothing had been declared uh, at that point, although the following day, um, the Massachusetts governor declared a state of emergency. So that's how, how close it was. So. I didn't write the book during that pandemic time of 2020, and then I date May 2021, which was when my son who moved in, and it's his birthday today, um, to work remotely. You know, it, it, sort of that was my pandemic. But what I did do was I kept, I just jotted down a few lines every day, even just what we were eating, and it was difficult to forage and do all of these things and keep keep us safe. Um, yeah. uh, my husband is fine, but he does have some health issues. So, you know, we really had to be very careful with him. So I had the sense that I needed to write something about what was happening. And then also, you know, thanks to the website and Facebook and everything else, I began to hear from people about how either they had come upon the books or they were reading the books Uh and they had found them to be very comforting. This absolutely filled me. It was the, the most wonderful kind of praise I could get. And I was just so happy that it happened. I began thinking about well, the books are chronological, even though you don't have to read them in order. Um, you know, what are the Fairchilds? You know, what's happening to them during all of this time? And how is it different because they have teenage kids, which I don't. But I began to really, in my head, imagine what they were going through. So there came a time when I realized I wanted to write the book. And I wanted to write about what people went through. There was a little pushback at first 
the publisher thought it might be gloomy. Uh-huh. You know, again, we pointed out that it was a chronological series and that even though this was hanging over all of us and we lost a family member and a good friend, you know, there was that aspect of some unexpected joys and pleasures and things that people found out about how they related to other people and also about themselves. I heard that from a great many people. One other book, um, actually, the one that was dealing with the addiction problems in rural Bane, where I lived four months of the year, I really felt a need to write that book. Other than that, I just, you know, I just felt impelled to write this book. And it was hard. It was really hard to write it. I can imagine. You know, one of the things I thought was so interesting was you set us in that town and with the family during COVID, but you also found a way to deal with a mystery, which I won't give away, but (laughs) which really touches on cybercrime, touches on our virtual lives and how they can cause us various kinds of trouble. So, I mean, you did not short shrift the mystery element of your book. Oh, thank you. Um, because I, you know, I mean, it's that this is what I do. So yes, there, <laughs> yeah. you know, there had to be a body, and uh, and that I'm not giving anything away, but I was very torn about the victim, um, yeah. and you know that, uh, and I think what we've seen, and especially now during this just unbelievable time that we're going through. It's like we just are one thing to another with Ukraine and now Israel. And uh, it's, I think it's worse now, the problem of social media. And now with AI, you can alter things. So we're getting even more false information. Um, you you can credit even more crimes being committed because of what's happening in social media on TikTok or on whatever. You know, when I wrote the book, which is now two and a half years ago, it wasn't as bad and it's just getting yeah. worse and worse and worse. Well, you know, it's funny. I have, I've had so many friends who on social media, you know, have been approached to befriended by people or whatever, you know, and, and there was a time when we generally just, or I used to just sort of say, yes, I could. Sure. Yeah. But, but so many people I know have run into real trouble. Yep. I know. I know. I've, scams yeah. and people trying to yep. steal their identity. So you're, you know, I, something tells me that the, that this will be, material for mysteries for decades to come. Oh, I think, I think absolutely. And what's interesting is that um, there are now a kind of a spate of um, pandemic and COVID books. So, because mine came out um, in May, since then, suddenly people do want to read about it, do, do want to relate to it. And so there's been an increase not just mysteries, but in terms of fiction and then nonfiction and memoir. Uh, because, you know, this, you know, I guess I've been reflecting on this because my, it is my son's birthday today. And I was thinking of that his adult life has been bracketed because he was a high school senior in 9-11. So that started his adult life. You know, he graduated from high school the year of 9-11. He was in that class. And then everything that's happened since then, it's 
almost it's just incomprehensible when I compare it to you know when I graduated from yeah. high school. Me um, too. It wasn't that everything was fine and dandy. JFK was assassinated, yeah. and then when I was in college, of course, Martin Luther King Jr., all of these different things yeah. that were happening. However, they weren't these kind of global terror coming out of nowhere. They were yeah. single individuals. There, It was an assassin. It was like this one. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. wasn't what's happening now. Um, and, and he's, you know, his whole adult life has been um, just facing... One thing. Well, part of it, part of it is because we we have the the internet, and because there's uh, news, constant barrage yeah. of news. Well, in speaking of time passing, many writers who write long running series with recurring characters and everything, these these series sort of be sort of timeless, where where time is not so much of a factor. This one, of course, these characters have aged, sort of going through time and all the events that happen. Was that something that you set out at the onset to to have this take place over a given time? And if so, what what were the challenges of writing a long running series that recognizes the time that we all live in and that time is passing and and always changing? Yeah, well, um, well, first of all, I thought I was only writing one book, and it was only <laughs> one legendary, um, Joe will remember right. Ruth Cavan, uh, my editor at, when I was at St. Martin's, and she said, when can we expect the next in the series? And then it was kind of, whoa, okay. Um, but throughout the series, what I avoided was, well, Nothing overtly political, because I really don't like soapbox mysteries. Yeah. I call where there's a, a point of view being ramped home. It can be something, you know, really wonderful, you know, like animal welfare or whatever. But, it, you know, I just, I avoided all of that. And so you really have to read my books pretty carefully to figure out what my politics are, although maybe not so carefully. But I didn't put events... Yes. Them. What I did instead was the main characters, the sort of this ensemble, like like a movie cast um, of people. They change, um, and they change in the relationship to each other, um, and in their marriage, and their friendships, and then of course the challenges uh, of. Um, bringing up kids. Um, so there's a lot over the course about uh, the problem of bullying, which then became cyberbullying. That was one of the books. That, I mean, there are all of these things in there, but they're still essentially um, traditional mysteries, you know, like an, like an Agatha Christie type, a puzzle mystery. Yes. You know, and that brings me, Catherine, to a long debated topic that I've gotten involved with at many conferences, which is, you know, classify mysteries, hard-boiled thrillers, uh, and, and your particular genre. There are there are people mostly, I think, who haven't read uh, in that genre who call them cozies. You know, I know, and, I know. And, and and you know, I always I'm always firm about saying traditional, you know, and and I'm thank saying, you, you know, and and the you can't type the whole genre of traditional, you know, that like, for instance, although you deal with food, like m many other writers have going back to, I remember reading Virginia Rich. Oh, yay. Your books though are to me are very sophisticated, very uh, heartfelt. You know what I mean? There's, there's nothing 
soft or sad happy about them. No, there really isn't. No, no, no. Are you done with this debate? What's your stance on this? Well, you know, it's um, the term cozy was was actually came out of an essay that um, oh, I think oh, who was it who who wrote it? I'm thinking Raymond Chandler, but I may be wrong. And in which he talked about these mysteries, um, these cozy mysteries in which more tea is spilt than blood. I mean, it was yeah. a real put down. And a lot of us, Margaret Marin, you know, people who were writing, I mean, Margaret's books certainly were not cozy. Um, you know, we, we really didn't like having that term or soft boiled, which is yeah. an underdone egg, this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> And we kind of pushed for a traditional, a traditional mystery or, in Margaret's case, you know, regional mysteries it was fine. Um, culinary mysteries really don't apply to my mysteries because no. food is kind of incidental, although, you know, she's a caterer and yeah. uh, all of those things. And the recipes are at the back for anyone who's not interested. And one of my best friends always says, great book, too much food. Publishers like to do niche marketing, um, yes. to label you as a genre. At times, they've been labeled as religious mysteries yeah. you know, because it, she's married <laughs> to yes. an indeterminate, an undetermined uh, kind of a melange of different Protestant religions. I, I yep. do not specify what religion, and that's marketing. You know, so if they want to market it that way, but I always ask them to use traditional and not go cozy when I am able to <laughs> to have a say in it. Catherine, in, in my reading, you know, I have read a lot of very, very light mysteries, almost silly mysteries that will go unmentioned. And and I think to me, what what makes something a traditional mystery, like your mysteries, is you never trivialize death. Yeah. That's, you know, I mean, where yes, a lot of the cozies yes. just have bodies pi- piling up, and no, I it know. becomes you know ludicrous and almost offensive. But I mean, you, your books always treat death and murder as a very serious thing. Yeah, um, that that was from the word go. I mean, it's it is the most heinous crime that can be committed. Yeah. By whether it is um, an individual responsible or whether it is an terrorist group or if it is a country you know this is without being didactic or preachy i really felt it was important to have a a real strong moral compass when it came to yes you're going to know who did it at the end and again this is how traditional mysteries are different from noir which i love noir mysteries Uh But they don't have that resolution at the end where justice prevails and order is restored. So for me, you know, to have that sense of hope, it was P.D. James who said the sense of hope that we live in a beneficent universe, to have that at the end, that's, you know, that's very important. You made me think about movies and I've been thinking about movies and my favorite, Hard Boiled, and I think Hard Boiled was pretty much created for him, was James Kane, the postman always brings twice and all of that. And he was really the, I think, the first writer to make you not feel sorry for the victim as much as the perpetrator, to be presenting the perpetrator 
as this damaged, irrevocably damaged person. And they're great, fantastic. I mean, he was fantastic. But it's a really different kind of mystery. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, adaptation, is that uh, is that something that that interests you? Have there been any options for Faith Fairchild for film or television? Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah um, when Murder She Wrote went off the air, yeah, um, they were scrambling around, um, and then at that time, no streaming. It was networks, and right. you know that. Um, so they wanted something to replace that, and so for a long time, you know they. Uh, there was this nice thing, and then CSI came in, and suddenly that nobody wanted to have uh, any anything remotely <laughs> resembling, <laughs> you know, Angela Lansbury, and um, even though Faith was a much younger person and had yeah. kids and everything else, um, and then over the years, uh, you know, every once in a while somebody will get interested in it or in one of the particular books uh, and uh, you know there will be but I you know I'm not really sure how it it would work as a series or um, you know may, there were a couple I thought would make good standalones um, yeah yeah would it that, be something that interested you if it, if it did happen to to work sure. oh yeah Oh, I, I, and screenwriting, uh, you know, your character, or is that something that you would feel better about handing over, you know, to somebody else, or is that something you'd really like to be involved in? I, well, I'd love to be involved in it if they, if they would let me, um, yeah. because I'm, um, I come from a family of, we are major movie um, Mavens and um, my late brother-in-law, whom we lost last year, was a, a very well-known um, film editor, uh, Ronald Roos, and um, and and as a kid, um, it sounds a little bit odd, but I never saw any of the Disney movies. My parents took us to see. Uh, there was a theater near us in New Jersey that showed. Um, British movies, and so I grew up watching the Lavender Hill Mob, and um, <laughs> right. I'm All Right, Jack, and the Lady Killers, and you know all of these things, um, and just so, and and you know I I love movies. One of the things about the pandemic was you know not not being able to go to the movies was yes. uh, yeah that was. And I'm universal in terms of film. I mean, I, I'm very happy that I w- was one of the first people to tell people, hey, you should see this Miyazaki anime film. <laughs> you know, right, when, oh, right. Yeah. When that came, okay, my son was then probably around seven or eight, so a really long time ago. And we told him he could pick any place in the world for his birthday, he is turning 40, and he has always wanted to go to Japan and to and to go to Studio Ghibli and to uh-huh. go to some of the locations. So, yeah, I, I just, you know, film, um, you yeah. Well, you know, Catherine, I, I think the time is better now for, for adaptation because yeah. we recently spoke with Craig Johnson and C.J. Box, you know, and they both, oh, yeah. they both felt that that the, the streaming networks had done right by them, you know, with the Longmire series and CJ yep. has had a series uh, based on, on his characters too. And it, it seems like there, there is, 
you, you have to get the essence of the character and the place and then create stories around that rather yeah. than adapt specific. And also the Reacher series has done the, the, the right. best. And then, and look at Anne Cleves in Shetland. It's, it's like a, it's a to- become a total industry with Shetland <laughs> yeah. with tours and Shetland. I mean, yeah. 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 So no, I would, I, yeah. would be, I would be happy. Um, you know, there's a, I have, a, there's a wonderful guy out there in LA who is, been there from the beginning, um, associated with Greenberger with my my agency, and uh-huh. um, you know he's plugged away. You know he's, yeah. you know there have been some near misses, and he's yeah. he's had right now. In fact, he's um, saying that he thinks that there might might be something coming down the pike. But that's, again, that's, and yeah. I'd love I'd love to be involved, but you know whatever they want, that would that's be. Fair. Well, as a uh, as a as a film buff, and Joe and I are as well. Uh, are there? What are some of your favorite adaptations? Both, you know, to to the small and the big screen over the years. Well, you know, it's again more than a film buff is being a book buff. Is that I find it very hard uh, to for adaptations of books I love. Um, yeah. You know, I have a hard time going, you know, to, I have to really be absolutely sure. I, you know, I look at the trailer and I, I, I can, you know, think about that. But, um, but I, it's not so much as a film book, the adaptations, um, well, I mean, obviously the ones like Mildred Pierce, you know, going back and, yeah. and then Hitchcock. I mean, I think North by Northwest may be my most favorite movie that I like to just watch uh-huh. uh, over and over again. Um, and I was very pleased with the adaptation. Finally, there was a good adaptation of Little Women. Um, Right. And and I also did go see the Barbie movie, um, <laughs> a, a very versatile, <laughs> very versatile person yeah. to have uh, done both of these things. Uh, as for the Barbie movie, um, the best part of that movie was the very beginning uh, and the very end. Yeah. <laughs> if you great if great you like, final that great final line and final scene. Oh. I, oh, yeah. I, I won't give it away even now, but I mean, no, just no. wrap the movie I didn't up. see that one coming. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming, but that the beginning with the Planet of the Apes, um, yes. takeoff yeah. was brilliant. You know, so it was. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, you know, I in terms of books, I I think I think um, Harlan's books have been done in very I well. So. I think so. You know, what's fascinating about that is that he has such a readership in France, and I, I think one oh. of the first adaptations, Tell No One, was yep. a French production. You know, I mean, it just shows you, you never was. know who is going to tap into a book and want to put it on the screen. And it was and it was great. It was terrific. Yeah, it was terrific. So you never yeah. know. And, and, you know, we, we've, we've discussed it, you know, and there's the theory that, a truly great novel, you know, is almost impossible, but you need something well, that there's a story that can be, you know, like for instance, there, there are terrible movies out there of Portnoy's Complaint and Rabbit Run that you oh, even know exist because yeah. they disappeared instantly. They were horrible. Yeah, but something like No Country for Old Men was Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. So every rule is made to be broken, I think. I think every rule. Very rare. We said there's a lot of good books made into bad movies and a lot of bad books made into good movies. I know it. I know it. Tales at both times. Yeah. It is, but um, no, but yeah, so I'm just trying, in terms of trying to think of others, I mean, I, I, I'm a great fan of, um, well, Nancy Metford, um, it's sort of the same, I have that same sense of, of humor that in her books, and they were just made into a, just a disastrous um uh, series for I, I guess it might, must have been PBS or Masterpiece okay. Theater. So you know I like to have, I I I think those. But then um, the Poirot with uh, David Suchet were yeah. terrific. Terrific, absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Love, he, he's one of my favorite actors ever. He's I know. So you know the I think the actor you know when when I'm thinking about all of these things it has. Um, it really has to do with the with the actor. There is a great movie, a short story by John uh, Cheever called The Swimming Pool, and it was Burt Lancaster. Oh, who, yes. It yes. was a small movie. That was a fantastic adaptation. Yes. And it's become a classic over the years. I don't think it did so well when it first came out. No, I think it did People talk about that movie a lot. Yeah, that's that's that springs to mind anyway. But, um, no, I, I really... I love the movies. Um, the um, my Ron, my brother-in-law, um, his favorite. I mean, he did big, big time. Um, you know, Star Trek and uh, a lot of other. He he worked with the director um, Nicholas Meyer, who also oh, wrote sure. Mysteries. Yeah, um, the two of them were. They were uh, their mothers had adjoining beds in the uh, maternity ward. They're both born on Christmas Eve <laughs> and, and, and lifelong friends, and so they did things. But but Ronnie's, the movie that he felt the most passionate about and that he thought was the best that he he had edited was Finding uh, Bobby Fisher. Oh, wow. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Great. yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That was a wonderful film. Yeah, was. and that's and that's one that, you know, kind of it has over the years people have been discovering it. Absolutely. You know, I think it it wasn't when it came out. Yeah. People weren't jumping up and down, but yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, Catherine, we could keep you on here for. Oh, I, we could go. I know, but you can't. But <laughs> this is this is was it's a, it's a beautiful um, autumn sunny day here yes, and. Here uh, too. Yeah, and I just um it's it's just lovely to talk to you guys and you can we don't have to do a podcast, just call and talk to me. <laughs> well thank you so much, Catherine, and, and uh best of luck with whatever you're working on next. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, percolating as they as they say. Yes. You know, and a lot of writers use that term. But uh but I'm I'm very happy and the um the body in, in the web is still going strong, and it'll come out in mass market, I think, sometime in the early spring. Um, so, you know, and people are still responding, and, and that's been incredibly gratifying, And yeah. as has been your remarks today. Thank you so much. 
Oh, I, I mean, you, you bring us so close to your characters in your books that I think people appreciated that you did that and allowed us to sort of relive that through Faith and her family. Mm-hmm. You know? Because, I mean, in, in years to come, I think it'll be like World War II for some people. You know, it's, it's yeah, part yeah. of the Depression. Oh, I mean, people, absolutely. People are never going to forget those couple of years. No. You know? So I think, I think you've done... Yeah. The community of service by putting it in oh. your way. Oh, that means so much. Mm-hmm. Well, you you take care. And, you guys uh, too. Talk to you later. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Bye bye. Bye bye.